0: Thank you, Micah, and good morning, Redeemer. It's wonderful to be here to celebrate uh, some new members in our midst. Uh, Even last last weekend, we got to uh, baptize five of them. Uh, That was a great joy. It's exciting also to have a new membership class this afternoon, Uh, and I look forward to meeting some of you there. Uh, But as we come to uh, this, this time in Judges, it says, Judges 10 to 12, we're really going to focus on chapter 11 today, uh, but let's come and ask that God would show us wonderful things in His Word. Heavenly Father, thank You that You speak to us. So today, give us ears to listen. We pray that as we hear Your Word, that we would see You more clearly, that we would see ourselves more clearly... You would draw us in repentance and faith to Your Son. And in all of this, that You would give us hope. It's in Jesus' good and great name that we pray. Amen. Well, friends, I am a terrible negotiator. Uh, Olivia could tell you this, um, I'm that guy that walks into a souk or a market and foolishly goes to the very first shop. Rookie, rookie mistake, you don't go to the first shop. I go to the first shop, ask, how much is this shirt? I say, a hundred dirham and all too often I say, sure. And I pay a hundred dirham before walking through the rest of the suit, only to, to realise I should have paid like half or a quarter of that amount. Um, but what's worse is when I think I've learned my lesson, I think I've learned my lesson, I should have negotiated and so I walk into another shop, the next shop, I say, how much of this? And they say, a hundred dirham. And I say, no, no, really, how much? How much? I say, sir, that's, that's the price. This isn't a shop where you negotiate. So, don't do that at Carrefour. Like, um, <laughs> there's a time to negotiate and there's a time to not negotiate. And in today's passage, uh, we're going to meet someone, Jephthah, who is a gifted negotiator. We're going to see some great good come from this. Uh, Yet, we'll also see that Jephthah doesn't know who he should and shouldn't negotiate with. And through all of this, we're going to learn about how we can relate to God, how we should deal with with our God. And I pray that even though this is a hard story, uh, that this is a story that would actually give us hope uh, in, in relationship with our God. So, as we start, we're going to go back to chapter 10... And there we'll see Israel dealing with the true God. Israel having a discussion with the true God. We see it there from chapter 10, verse 6. We're told, uh, surprisingly enough, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Amorites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against all the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Well, sadly, we see the, the cycle that we've become familiar with in Judges. God's people forget their God. Uh, they turn from him to worship other gods. And so God hands them over. Uh, God hands them over to their enemies. And here we're told they are severely distressed. Uh, that the Ammonites uh, to the uh, west of them, I don't know, the Ammonites to the east of them, and the Philistines to the west of them. On each side, they're being pressed in by these two enemies, they're severely distressed. But this time we're told, in verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and served the Baals. And this, if you've been reading Judges since the beginning, is the best repentance yet. God's people have often got into trouble... When you abandon God and live your way, it'll often lead to trouble. Uh, and often they've cried out for help, or they've cried out. Here we're told that they say, We've sinned against you, God. Now, this is the clearest repentance yet. Yet God has something to tell them. Verse 11 The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Ammonites, from the Amorites and the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and Moonites oppressed you and you cried out to me, I saved you from their hand. God saved them back in the Exodus from Egypt, He saved them if they wandered in the wilderness, He's brought them and saved them if they came into the land, even throughout Judges, God's kept forgiving them. But he says, yet, verse 13, you've forsaken Me and served other gods, therefore I'll save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods you, whom you've chosen, let them save you in your time of distress. God said, I have saved you, but you've again and again, you've chosen these other gods over Me. So, we'll see if they can save you, see how that goes. But the people don't give up, verse 15, the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and serve the Lord. Again, this seems like the best repentance yet. They're even acting on what they're saying, they're putting away their foreign gods. The people seem to repent, they appear to show some fruit of repentance. And we might think God will respond to this, that God will be moved by their repentance. Yet, look at what it says, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 16. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. We might expect it to say, God was moved by the repentance, God responded to their repentance. But it doesn't say that. It says, God's not moved by their repentance, but by his compassion and mercy. God's salvation doesn't flow from our repentance. But from his love, even his pity. And as we see here, God is moved to compassion. He will save his people. Uh, and in verse 17, we see the next step. Uh, the, the enemy, the Ammonites, they come ready to attack Israel. And the leaders, especially of Gilead, say to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And that sets the scene for our next judge, for Jephthah. And we'll, we'll meet Jephthah, we'll see that Jephthah is a skilled negotiator and here, he will deal with the duplicitous. I know no, duplicitous isn't a word we use very often, but I think it fits here. To be duplicitous is to be two-faced, to say one thing and to do another. Or to do one thing, and then when it suits you, to do another thing. And here we'll see Jephthah dealing with his people, um, who'd once discarded him, but now they need something from him, uh, they come crying back. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 1, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You have not an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So, Jephthah had a hard start to life. wasn't his fault, he'd been born of a prostitute, his brothers had turned against him, driven away, he'd been rejected, lived as an exile... Uh, yet, in that time, he learned to get by. He'd obviously become street smart, he'd, he'd learned to survive, and more than s- survive, being a, living as an exile, exile, he'd become a mighty warrior. And this wasn't leading an army, but more leading a gang. This guy had figured out how to survive on the streets. Uh, he was leading a gang, uh, he'd become a mighty warrior. Uh, but this outcast is about to be invited back. Verse 4, the Ammonites made war with Israel, and when they made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said, come and be our leader, that we, may f- that we may fight against the Ammonites. So, we need you, come and help us, Jephthah, you're the one who can lead us. But Jephthah, verse 7, says, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house, Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And they don't really give an answer to him, they just say, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing, we do need your help. Uh, Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said, that's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Yes, they have rejected him, yet now they need him and so they're coming back and saying, hey, you can be our leader now, where have we seen this before? Well, this is just what Israel has done to God. Israel had driven God, their own God away. Uh, driven, Israel had chosen different gods, yet now they were in trouble, they were calling out to God, saying, help us, we need your help. And God had similarly said to them, but didn't you choose the other gods? Why, why are you asking me for help now? Jephthah's words to the people could be God's words as well, did you not hate me and drive me away? Why then have you come to me now when you're in distress? See, the people of Gilead were duplicitous, they were two-faced, they cast Jephthah away and then invited him back when it suited them. And that makes us look back at that great repentance of the Israelites, makes us wonder how genuine it was. Were they really grieving their sin? Were they really grieving that they had offended the God who loved them? Or did they just need His help? They were saying the right things, even doing some of the right things. But here we see Jephthah sees an opportunity. Jephthah sees an opportunity to serve, to help. Jephthah also sees an opportunity to get what he's always lacked, acceptance, a place among his people. And so, Jephthah makes a deal. Verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord give them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord who will be witness between us if we do not do as we say. So, Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah's a good talker. We see he speaks a lot of words in this passage and here he makes a deal that's going to be good for everyone. His people will have a leader to save them and uh, he is restored to his people. We will see Jephthah then takes his gift of negotiation into battle because rather than going and attacking the Ammonites straight away, he goes in for a negotiation As he deals with the enemy in chapter 11, verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messages to the king of the Ammonites and said, "What do you have against me that you've come against to f- me? T- uh, come ag- come to me to fight against my land." And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, "Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land and from Arnon to the Jabbok and the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably." And Jephthah again sent me- messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to them, "Thus says Jephthah." Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. So, rather than beginning with a fight, Jephthah goes in for some diplomacy. He he tries to make a deal, he tries to show the, the Ammonites, actually, this land isn't rightfully yours. He tells the story of how God has given it to Israel. He tells the story of how Israel had tried to pass through peaceably, yet it was the Ammonites who'd attacked Israel and, and started the fight many years ago. Uh, he, he, he reasoned, saying, this isn't rightly your land. Um, and so he says in verse 23, uh, then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Ammonites from before His people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess?' And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, there, I don't think Jephthah is saying, your God, Chemosh, is another God like ours. I think he's saying, well, God's given us His land, you can take whatever your God gives you. He concludes in verse 27, therefore, I have not sinned against you. You do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the Judge, may the Lord, the Judge, decide between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So, Jephthah makes a clear case, he puts out a negotiation, he rightly points out that the Lord is the true judge, that the Lord will give victory, that whatever the Lord decides is what will happen. He's right, he negotiates well but even then, the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah uh, that he sent to him. Here we see Jephthah has a confidence in the Lord, uh, he has a confidence that says, actually, God has delivered, God, if God has promised this land to us, then it will be ours. Uh, Jephthah had declared this confidence in the Lord. But as we see Jephthah kind of negotiating, doing deals with his people, and now with his enemies, Jephthah has one more deal to make and that's where things are going to turn from hopeful to disaster. Because Jephthah, in dealing with everyone else, he also tries to make a deal with God. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. The picture here is of Jephthah, he's been clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, with power. And what happens when a judge gets the Spirit of the Lord on him? Well, it's bad news for the enemies. Victory is coming. He's clothed with the Spirit of the Lord and the picture is of him passing through different Israelite villages, picking up a a bigger and bigger army. People are joining him from every village. He's on his way and things look really bad for the Ammonites. When the Spirit of the Lord has come on his chosen deliverer, well, victory is sure. Things look bad for the enemy. Yet... Jephthah stops, and Jephthah, the negotiator, now tries to make a deal with God. Verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites uh, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah makes God an offer, he tries to make a deal with God. We've seen in this passage that, actually, God doesn't respond to people's deep repentance. God's moved by His own compassion and mercy. And here, though Jephthah had been clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, though victory was certain, though he was on his way to destroy the Ammonites, he stopped and tried to make a deal. Uh, In verse 32, we're told Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them, uh, He struck them at twenty cities as far as Abel carrieth with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of God. God does give his people victory through Jephthah. Oh, uh, God does give a great victory. Yet this victory was completely unaffected by the vow that Jephthah made. Verse 29 said, from Mizpah to Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites, then verse 32 picks up like there was nothing in between and says, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and God gave victory. Jephthah's vow was completely unnecessary. When he had been raised up to deliver his people, when he had been clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, well, victory was certain. Yet Jephthah, the deal-maker, had tried to make a deal with God. And it's a day of victory until, well, he goes home. Verse 34, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him, with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child, beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, My daughter! You've brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Jephthah had made this vow, and we don't know what he was imagining would come out from this house. Would it be an animal? Would it be a slave? Yet the worst happens, his only daughter comes out. And here we see, well, Jephthah has talked too much, again, he's, I've opened my mouth to the Lord. We see Jephthah seems to blame his daughter, you have brought me very low, you've become the source of great trouble to me. His daughter hasn't done any of this, it's him who's talked too much, it's him who opened his mouth, who tried to make a deal when he didn't need to. She said to him in verse 36, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So he said, So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains, weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And Jephthah, who's always got something to say, who's always been talking so much... He says, okay, go. Uh, We're told he sends her away for two months. She departed, she and her companions, they wept, and at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. So, even the writer can't bear to repeat what he did, to sacrifice his own daughter, he did what he'd said he would do. So, Jephthah killed his only daughter. He sacrificed her like the pagans, like the nations around him did to their gods. In case you're in any any doubt, this was wrong. The law of God itself made provision for rash vows. If you'd made a vow, a promise to God that you later realised was a mistake, that you realised was sinful, you could turn back. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 4 and 6, it says, if you realise your sin in making a vow, go and confess that sin to God, go go and offer a a sheep as an offering and your sin will be taken away. You can break that vow, if you've sinned in making it, you confess that sin to God. Yet Jephthah, this man who makes things happen with his words, he holds on to what he said, He doesn't take advantage of the provision that God's Word had made, for foolish and rash vows. And what's worse, is Jephthah does to his daughter what God had told His people not to do. Deuteronomy 12, uh, Israel had been told, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way in the way of these other nations. Because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Israel had been told, when you go into the Promised Land, when you drive out these nations, don't worship me like they worship their gods. They think their gods need to be manipulated. They think their gods need to be convinced. Their gods need to be negotiated with. To see, how much do I need to give these gods so that I might twist their arm and they'll give me what I need? How much do we need to give our gods so that that they will do what we want? How hard do you need to kick the vending machine so that it will give you the the treat you want? That's how the other nations treated their gods. Yet, the people of Israel were not to treat their God like that. They were not to do wickedness in their name and especially when they were fighting against the Ammonites, the God of the Ammonites was Molech. And back in Leviticus, they'd been warned specifically, Leviticus 18, verse 21, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In this tragedy... Jephthah, though a great victory had been won for his people, he disregarded God's Word. He, He did and followed his worldly wisdom, this vow that he had made, thinking he needed to manipulate God, rather than listening to the wisdom from above. God's Word that said there's forgiveness for a foolish vow, that you should never sacrifice, never worship in the way of the gods around them. Victory for God's people, yet tragedy for Jephthah's daughter. Tragedy for his family. And a day of sadness and shame for Israel. This is a sad story. It ends sadly. But what can we take from it? What can we learn from it? Well, I think there is one medicine that would have healed the sickness in Jephthah's heart. There's there's one truth that if Jephthah had grasped, everything would have been different. And that one truth is the goodness of God. Jephthah treated God like he was like all the other gods, who needed to be convinced, who needed to be manipulated. Yet our God is not like that. We don't need to do deals with God, because our God is good. Jephthah didn't trust the goodness of God, he tried to do deals with God, manipulate him, instead of just trusting God's compassion and power. And doubting the goodness of God, well, it's always been at the heart of sin. In the garden, Adam and Eve, they'd been made like God, they were made in the image, the very image of God. Yet, the serpent comes and says, don't you want to be like God? He casts doubt on God's goodness so that they try to take for themselves what God has already given them. The Tower of Babel, the nations of the earth come together to make a name for themselves, all the nations of the earth and God God does away with that and in the very next chapter, Genesis 12, well, God actually has a promise, says, well, actually, I am going to make your name great. I am going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. throughout history, if people have made gods in their own image, if people have worshipped all kinds of so-called gods, the way we do this, the way people do this is we think we need to give this God something, to convince this God to be good to us. Whether the sacrifices we can make, the life we can live, the righteousness that we can attain, we think we need to be good enough to win something from God, we need to be good enough to earn something from God. In doing so, we fail to see his goodness. In Jesus' temptations, this was the very temptation. God had just told him at his baptism, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And Satan comes and says, Are you really the son of God? If you're really the son of God, prove it. He tried to make Jesus doubt the goodness of God. Yet, Jesus trusted the goodness of God. Uh, Jesus didn't do things His own way. Jesus submitted to His Father's wisdom. And though Jesus was rejected by His own people, like Jephthah was, and like Jephthah's very rejection had taught Him to fight and be a mighty warrior, that God then used to save the very people who rejected Him. Well, in Jesus, we have the one who was rejected by His own people, yet in that very rejection, opened the door for salvation. In Jesus, we have someone who, like Jephthah's daughter, with the one righteous person in the story, yet was led like a lamb to the slaughter, the only child. When Jesus tells us about our God, we get a very different God to Jephthah's God listen to chapter 15 uh, Luke 15 verse 17 from the story of the prodigal son this prodigal son had abandoned his father he'd squandered his father's inheritance on all kinds of worldly things but f- Luke 15 verse 17 when this prodigal son came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but i perish here with hunger I will arise and go to my Father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Even this prodigal son tried to make a deal with his father. He said, maybe if I confess my sin, maybe... He he thinks he needs to make a, a deal with the Father. And so he arose and came to the Father, but while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. It's right that we come in repentance, it's right that we confess our sins, yet God is not moved by our repentance, God is not moved by the the goodness of our confession, He is moved by His compassion and mercy and love, because He alone is the God of steadfast love, He alone is the God of mercy and grace, He alone is the God who is good. We don't need to move Him, change Him by anything we can do the God Jephthah needed to know more deeply, He's the God we need to know. It's this goodness of God that is at the heart of our great problems. You know, some people try to save themselves, some people try to live for themselves, but they're both making the same error. They're believing Satan's lie from the garden, that God isn't good, that God doesn't love us. Some people don't believe that God is good, so they reject His rules. Those those rules are restricting, I'm, I'm going to go live my way. Where other people don't believe that God is good and so, even though He offers salvation, often salvation freely, when we don't believe His goodness, we'll try to do it, we'll try to do enough, earn enough, be such good people that God will have to accept us. See, both living for ourselves, and trying to prove ourselves they come from this same heart failing to trust the goodness of God so friends let's look to our God because he is good he is the god of all grace and compassion he is the god who so loved the world that he gave his only son he is the god who we cannot and should not try to move or manipulate yeah, we trust in His goodness. So, friends, trust the goodness of God. could trust the goodness of God in disappointment. In today's passage, Jephthah had been rejected by others. That might have, may have made it hard for him to trust the goodness of God. Jephthah and the people of Israel had been worshipping other gods, gods that they needed to manipulate and do deals with and negotiate with. They'd been disappointed by those other gods, yet they let the way that they, these gods w- were to be dealt with, they let that impact their relationship with the true God. So friends, even in disappointment, whether we've let, been let down by friends, by family, let's not lose sight of the goodness of our God. Many celebrate Father's Day today. Some people have been let down by their fathers, yet our idea of our Heavenly Father shouldn't be shaped by how our fathers have risen to or fell short of that ideal because our God stands alone. He is the God of goodness and love. So trust the goodness of God in disappointment. Trust the goodness of God in salvation. If you think that you can do enough that God will forgive you, you think that you can do enough that God will accept you. That's not how our God works. Our God is the God of grace. We're told that in Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, if you want to know God, if you want to be right with God, accept His gift with empty hands. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you, you could do. It's not the life you have lived, it's not the life you are living, it's not the life you hope to live for God that will save you, but trusting in His goodness, His mercy, His free gift of salvation in Jesus. Trust the goodness of God in salvation, trust the goodness of God in obedience, because as we we seek to obey God, as we seek to live for His glory, we're living for one who is good, His commands are good, His commands are not burdensome. He calls us to live, to die to ourselves, to live for Him. He's calling us to do what is for our good, for our joy. Let's let the the goodness of our God strengthen our, our obedience to Him as we live thankful for His salvation. And finally, in prayer, trust the goodness of God in prayer. Sometimes I think we can fall into the error in prayer where if we just pray all night, then maybe God will answer. If we just pray the right prayers, the right words, God might answer. Yet that fails to remember that our God is good. Listen to Jesus in Luke 11, verse 9, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Jesus says you don't need to do deals with God, you don't need to try to move God, who's just sort of stingily holding things back from you. No, your God is a good, loving Father who loves to give His children good gifts. We're told in Luke 12, fear not, little flock, for it's the the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Our Father is good, He longs to bless us, He longs to save us, He longs to work for us. So, He says, come and ask, like children. Don't try to make deals, don't try to make offers, but be, stand in the, the presence of His goodness, rejoice in His goodness, and come to Him, ask, because He delights to, to answer. Friends, remembering the goodness of God would have changed everything for Jephthah. Remembering the goodness of God changes everything for us. It protects us from those two dangers that would lead us away from the grace of God, living for ourselves or trying to prove ourselves. Living the, believing, remembering the goodness of God changes our Christian life. So, would we look to Him, would we rejoice in Him, would we remember Him? I'm going to finish with some words from one of my favourite kids' books. Uh, it's a book called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, a bunch of devotions for kids, uh, by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And one of the devotions says this, what words does God want you to treasure in the deepest part of you? Be good? Do it better? Try harder? Are those the words God wrote in the Bible for us, to rescue and free us? No. Those words only show us what we can't do. The words God wants us to remember are just three small ones. I love you. They are the words that stop the terrible lie that Satan whispered to Eve in the garden. God doesn't love you. They are the words that heal the poison in our hearts that stops us from trusting God. They are the words that Jesus came to tell us with His whole life. They are the words He died to prove. So, what words will you treasure today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to look to you in your goodness, to remember you in your goodness? For any here today who've been trying to offer you something that you might save, that you might accept, would we let go of all of those things, come to you with empty hands, and accept your good, free gift of salvation? For those of us seeking to live for You as Your children, would You help us to remember Your goodness to us? Let nothing cloud Your goodness, Your love, Your steadfast mercy. Would you let us not trust in our zeal, in our thankfulness, but trust in Your abundant mercy, goodness and love. Father, would You fill our hearts and our minds with Your goodness? Would You help us to live joyfully? as your saved, redeemed and loved people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.